while we're waiting, a reminder, there is no class next week. Remember that spring break, so do not come next Monday. I won't be here. All right, this evening, uh, John 11, and Lord willing, 12 and 13 as well. Think about the details, the sisters in grief, in fear of what might be revealed when the tomb was opened. They said, already he stinks. Then the tomb opened. Jesus called. Lazarus stepped out, still wrapped in the grave claws. Have you ever thought how he must have felt? as he stood blinking in the sunlight, looking anew on a world from which he had taken his last leave. Nothing could ever be the same again. Morris West, the Clowns of God. Nothing could ever be the same as it was before, not for Lazarus, not for Mary, not for Martha, not for the disciples, Not for Jesus, not for you, not for me. The seventh and final sign, the seventh and final miracle sign of John's gospel is Christ's magnum opus, his great work, his great and mighty work. This miracle is the stunning and magnificent climax to the revelation of his supernatural power for those whom he loves, his precious sheep. John 10, I am the good shepherd. Those whose eyes he has touchingly opened. John 9, I am the light of the world. Those whom he feeds with bread out of heaven. John 6, I am the bread of life. Those whose feet he has strengthened. John 5, arise, take up thy bed and walk. Those whose thirst he has quenched. John 4, I am the fountain of living water. Those whose life has been generated anew, reborn from above. John 3, I am the one descended from heaven. Truly, you must be born from above. Those who hold a wedding invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. John 2, the wedding at Cana. A sign of the transformation of the ages and an anticipation of the wedding feast in glory. This miracle in chapter 11 is the stunning and magnificent climax to the revelation of the person and power of the Son of God to his own. The eschatological bridegroom, John 2. The bringer of the eschatological birth, John 3. The giver of eschatological drink, John 4. The eschatological healer, John 5. The eschatological bread, John 6. The eschatological light, John 9. The eschatological shepherd, John 10. Now the eschatological resurrection, John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let this revelation possess you. Let this declaration of Jesus Christ soak into your mind, bathe your heart, suffuse your soul. Let this promise raise you up and nothing, nothing can ever be the same again. John's record of the resurrection transformation of Lazarus is Christ's very own invitation to you. Be ye transformed by entering in, identifying with, participating in, possessing the resurrection which Jesus now brings. You can no longer live to the dead flesh, sheep of the shepherd, born blind but having eyes touched by the light of the world, hunger assuaged by the bread of life, thirst quenched by living water, born anew from heaven, guests of the bridegroom. You have been made alive by the power of an endless life, an endless resurrection life. Your life before this resurrection has been buried, and your life in Christ in the power of this resurrection era is now raised up to the heavenly places. Lambs of the shepherd, once blind, now seeing the light. Hungry ones, thirsty ones, reborn ones, wedding guests. John 11 is a revelation to you that in the omnipotent power of the resurrection which Christ unleashes at the tomb of Lazarus, your life can never be the same again. The resurrection of Lazarus is the conclusion to part one of John's gospel. The resurrection of Lazarus is the inauguration of part two of John's gospel. In John chapter 11, the public ministry of Jesus ends. In John chapter 11, the passion narrative of Jesus begins. The proof of this point is John 11:53, where the Jews plan to kill Jesus. We are at the hinge of the gospel, the pivot which signals the deliberate animosity of the Jewish leaders. From chapter 11, 47 to chapter 19, the plot to crucify Jesus provides the backdrop. Mary bathes Jesus' feet. He is going to die. Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He is going to die. Jesus bathes his disciples' feet. He is going to die. Jesus bids his disciples farewell. He is going to die. Jesus is arrested, tried, crucified. He is put to death. The shadow looming over this hinge point, chapter 11, is the shadow of the death of the Son of Man. And this shadow is mirrored, reflected, foreshadowed in the death and resurrection of Lazarus. The death and resurrection of Christ intrudes itself into the death and resurrection of Lazarus. We cannot enter into the drama of the story of Lazarus without entering into the drama of the story of Jesus. This story anticipates Jesus' story and so enriches your story. The pivotal nature of chapter 11 is underscored by two factors. First, it is the longest story in John's gospel. 
save the story of our Lord's passion in chapters 18 and 19. It is as if the length of the Lazarus narrative prepares us for the lengthy description of the passion narrative to follow. The two longest narratives in the fourth gospel deal with death, the death of Lazarus, the death of Jesus. Second, the pivotal nature of chapter 11 is underscored by its position in the narrative progression of the gospel, which has unfolded up to this point. In John 4, Jesus heals the official's son, the boy being sick for perhaps only a short time. In John 5, Jesus heals the lame man, a man crippled for 38 years. In John 9, Jesus heals the blind man, a man who has been blind from birth. What more severe than the sickness, sickness of a child being crippled for 38 years? What more severe than 38 years without walking, being born blind? What more severe than blindness from the womb? Death. Death. In John 11, Jesus storms the final citadel, the ultimate bastion of the curse. In John 11, Jesus raises a man four days stinking dead. It is true that the pattern of chapter 11 is analeptic. That is, it looks back to the disability from birth to long-term crippling to childhood sickness Nonetheless, chapter 11 shifts from analepsis to prolepsis, from looking back to looking forward. Death and life become dominant here in chapter 11, and those realities are prophetic of the story of Jesus in chapters 12 through 19. At John 11, the plot intensifies. The Son of God invades the arena of death itself. In front of Lazarus' tomb, Jesus opens himself to death, weeps in the presence of death, groans with the travail of death, cries out with a loud voice before the gate of death. Christ's deliberate entrance into the arena of death is a pivotal hinge in the history of redemption. To the dread Lord of the curse, the Son of Man opens himself. To this terrible and inescapable tyrant, this harbinger of darkness, this herald of tears, this bringer of sighs and groans to cursed death, the Son of God approaches. The dark inside of the tomb of Lazarus is a grim summons to Jesus that he too must follow. Even the Son of Man must go the way of all flesh. Oh, how he weeps. Oh, how he groans. Oh, how he cries with a loud voice. John chapter 11 is proleptic. Nothing can be the same as it was before for Jesus. The development of this story is simple. Jesus is informed of Lazarus' illness, and Jesus lingers. 
Jesus arrives in Bethany and Jesus lingers. Jesus arrives at Lazarus' tomb and Jesus acts. The story, broadly speaking, is oriented around the two interviews with the sisters, Mary and Martha. The clue to the importance of these two dialogues is underscored by the duplicate protestations in verses 21 and 32. You will notice they are identically phrased, identical protests by Martha and Mary. The story moves to the one affirmation. Lord, if you had been here, verse 21, while the story moves away from the second affirmation, Lord, if you had been here, verse 32. Martha's Christological confession cannot be slighted. The person central to this story is the Lord, verse 27. The Christ, or the Messiah, verse 27. The Son of God, verse 27. The Coming One, verse 27. In this one verse, in this one utterance, more Christological titles are compacted in the fourth gospel than any other place. From the lips of a woman in John 11:27, the most comprehensive rehearsal of the being and person of Christ. Now, the absence of a comparable confession from the lips of Mary in verse 32 is no reflection upon her lack of Christ-centered faith. In falling at his feet, she is tacitly acknowledging him Lord. When she bathes his feet in chapter 12, she will be explicitly claiming him as her Lord and Savior. No, the absence of a confession from Mary's lips is not an adverse reflection upon her faith. Rather, the one who has been confessed as Lord, Christ, Son of God, He who comes, this one, now demonstrates the incarnate traits of identification with us. He weeps, he groans, he is troubled in his spirit, he cries out with a loud voice. With Martha, we confess true God. From Mary's prostration, we confess true man. Let your lips and heart profess Jesus as Lord Christ, Son of God, the one who was to come. And at the same time, let your lips and heart profess this Jesus incarnate who entered the world to bear and defeat the curse with prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears, with groans, being deeply moved in spirit. This story means that our confession of Jesus can never be the same as it was before. Truly God and truly man is clothed with new powerful meaning because of Lazarus' tomb. See how he loved him. Now, in addition to Martha's Christological confession, the dialogue between her and Jesus involves the two ages. She is very Jewish in her concept of eschatology. In verse 24, she testifies to her hope in the resurrection at the last day. 
In other words, Martha looks for the resurrection at the end of the world. This linear concept, resurrection as the last point on the line of history, is not in itself wrong. Our Westminster standards affirm that on the last day, the dead will rise. But Jesus says something to Martha which alters her understanding of the last day or the end of the age. Jesus places resurrection in front of her. Not only is resurrection a last day phenomenon, Jesus states that resurrection is a present day phenomenon. I am the resurrection. Present tense, now time. The resurrection since the coming of Christ is now as well as not yet. Resurrection, which is an eschatological concept, has now, since the advent of Christ, become a semi-eschatological concept. To be raised up now, as well as to be assured of being raised up at the last day. The resurrection of Lazarus is a pledge that in Christ Jesus, resurrection has already occurred. It has invaded history in the midst of time. And the proleptic mirror of the resurrection of Jesus assures us that in his resurrection, in Christ's resurrection, the age of resurrection has come upon us. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, has passed out of death into life. Jesus is assuring you that through faith in him, resurrection life, eternal life, belongs to you now. The resurrection of the last day will be but a complete and consummate experience of what has been begun in the resurrection of the dead already inaugurated by the Son of God. So the dialogue with Martha brings some resolution to the sorrow of the household. Her confession is a declaration of her faith in Jesus. The revelation of the resurrection and the two ages is instructions which she receives as she receives Christ himself. But the dialogue with Mary underscores the unresolved tension of this present age. Resurrection may be a now reality, but Lazarus remains in his tomb. If Jesus is affirming a present resurrection, why is he so like Lazarus? Why is he so apparently helpless and passive in the face of death? What reason can Jesus have for lingering, for delaying, for being so apparently passive and helpless in the face of Lazarus's death? In the first place, please notice that as Jesus receives Martha's confession, instructs her about the two ages, receives Mary's prostration, 
He also embodies the grief which comes from the curse hovering over this present age. Jesus comes to the tomb, stands in the presence of death, weeps, groans, cries out as the eschatological mourner. He is not untouched by the feeling of our infirmities. Indeed, he feels the grief and sorrow that Martha and Mary feel. This is not vain display on the part of Jesus. This is profound empathy, deeper empathy than Martha and Mary knew, because as Jesus weeps, as he groans and cries out, he is being possessed as the man of sorrows, with the griefs that he must bear in order to redeem us from tears and groans and loud cries. The eschatological mourner identifies with the family of Lazarus to assure us that our mourning and sorrow have been felt, felt and experienced by God's Son himself. In the second place, Jesus appears passive and helpless in the face of Lazarus' death in order to demonstrate to Lazarus and to us the incarnate and vicarious pattern of death and life. Paul alludes to this in Ephesians 2 when he writes, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And again, Paul says in Colossians 2, And when you were dead in your transgressions, he made you alive together with Christ. All Calvinistic theologians have grasped this point, perhaps no better than George Whitfield, the powerful Calvinistic evangelist of the 18th century who preached the doctrines of sovereign grace to hundreds of thousands in England and colonial America during the Great Awakening. Listen to Whitfield the great Calvinist evangelist on the resurrection of Lazarus. Come, ye dead, Christless, unconverted sinners. Come and see the place where they laid the body of the deceased Lazarus. Behold him laid out, bound hand and foot with grave claws, locked up and stinking in a dark cave with a great stone placed on top of it. View him again and again. Go nearer to him. Be not afraid. Smell him. Ah, how he stinketh. Stop there now. Pause a while. And whilst thou art gazing upon the corpse of Lazarus, give me leave to tell thee with great plainness, but greater love, that this dead, bound, entombed, Stinking carcass is but a faint representation of thy poor soul in its natural state. For whether thou believest or not, 
Thy spirit which thou bearest about with thee, sepulchred in flesh and blood, is as literally dead to God and as truly dead in trespasses and sins as the body of Lazarus was in that cave. Was he bound hand and foot with grave claws? So art thou bound hand and foot with thy corruptions. And as a stone was laid on the sepulcher, so there is a stone of unbelief upon thy stupid heart. Perhaps thou hast lain in this state not only four days, but many years, stinking in God's nostrils. And what is still more affecting, thou art as able to raise thyself out of this loathsome dead state to a life of righteousness and true holiness as ever Lazarus was to raise himself from the cave in which he lay so long. Thou mayest try the power of thy own boasted free will and the force and energy of moral persuasion and rational arguments, all of which without doubt have their proper place in religion. But all of thy efforts exerted with never so much vigor will prove quite fruitless and abortive till that same Jesus who said, Take away the stone and cried, Lazarus, come forth, quickens you. Now that is not Arminianism. That is not easy believism. That is not Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism or any other alleged Christian nonsense. That is Calvinism. And that is an image you can imprint on your brain. If you ever have any doubt about how you were born again, think of Lazarus in his tomb, or any other person born again in this world. Any other person is as dead as Lazarus was. And Jesus didn't come to Lazarus' tomb with a spoonful of medicine in his hand and say, Lazarus, reach out your hand and cooperate with my offer and take the medicine. Dead men don't take medicine. Dead men don't breathe. Dead men don't live. They're dead. They're corpses. That's what you are in your natural state. That's Calvinism. That's Paulinism. That's Johnism. That's the whole Bibleism. So let us have none of this nonsense about you. Oh, yes, well, you came with a bus full. They'll wait. You know, everybody Jesus called, he called publicly. You can get up out of your seat and come on down and sign the card and raise your hand. It's within your power. No, it's not. And until you realize that you are cast headlong upon the mercy of God and cry out, Oh, Lord Jesus, save me. Holy Spirit, regenerate me. Raise me up out of my dead, lifeless state until you realize how powerless you are, then you will never come to Jesus for life. So let's have none of this nonsense about free will and whether the will of a sinner is free to choose Christ. It's dead. It's as dead as Lazarus in his tomb. And the only way that will is ever going to choose Jesus is if Jesus makes it alive. If Jesus makes that will willing in the day of his omnipotent power. You remember Jesus at Lazarus' tomb if you ever have trouble with your doctrine of salvation, if you ever have trouble with your evangelism. You remember John 11, Jesus standing in front of that tomb. That's the only way dead sinners are made alive. That's Augustinianism. That's Calvinism. That's the Word of God. For you see, 
It is omnipotent power. It is omnipotent power from God which raises the dead. Spiritually dead, physically dead. You have here in this resurrection miracle a cameo of what happens to every person in their soul. And must happen if they are going to live before the face of God. You and I have no spiritual life until Christ uses, raises you and me from spiritual death to spiritual life. We are stone cold dead. Not your works, not your free will, not your lifestyle, not your reason, nothing in you can produce resurrection life save the almighty grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who gives life to the dead irresistibly. Lazarus didn't stand in that tomb and say, No, Jesus, I don't want to come out. You're offering me resurrection life, but I, I don't think I want it, Jesus. I can resist you, Jesus. I can resist omnipotence. I can resist supernatural divine power. No, you can't. Praise God, you can't. Every one of you sitting out there knows, praise God, you can't, because if it were up to you, you would have resisted it until you died in your sins. He irresistibly raped your soul, and he converted you unto grace and life eternal. Now, the story of the resurrection of Lazarus is precisely as Calvinists like George Whitfield have indicated it is a cameo of how God translates sinners from death to life. And so you who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ have believed because he raised you. He irresistibly, supernaturally raised you from death to life. Christ alone, Christ solely, Christ exclusively, only Christ, only Christ made you spiritually alive from the dead your will would have resisted him until your corpse was moldering in your coffin. In coming to the risen Christ, nothing, nothing has ever been the same for you as it was before. But now, even more poignantly, even more profoundly, even more magnificently, from John 11, nothing could ever be the same for Jesus again. Jesus does not come to Lazarus' tomb merely as the eschatological mourner. Jesus does not come to Lazarus' tomb merely to reveal the nature of the two ages. Jesus does not come to Lazarus' tomb merely to receive the Christological confession of Martha and the prostration of Mary. Jesus does not come to Lazarus' tomb merely to provide a picture of sovereign grace in raising sinners spiritually dead so as to grant them spiritual and eternal life. No. Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb to inaugurate his own death and resurrection. And if nothing could ever be the same for Lazarus again, nothing could ever be the same for Jesus again. He is opening himself to death 
From John 11 to John 19, Jesus is submitting to death. He is life. He is eternal life. But He is submitting to death. He is outside of the curse. He is the Blessed One. Blessed be His name. There is no malediction hanging over Him or dwelling in Him. But He is bowing His head to the malediction of the curse. He is resurrection. He is life, not death. But He is condescending to dwell in a tomb to be shut up in death. I am the resurrection and the life, but He will become the crucifixion and the death. He, the good shepherd of the sheep, will be devoured by the wolves. He, the light of the world, will be shut away in darkness. He, the bread of life, will hunger for life, starved with death. He, the strength of a cripple, will be drained of his strength in crippling death. He, the fountain of living water, will cry, I thirst! He, the one born from above, will be unborn. He will need to be reborn. He will need to be reborn again by resurrection from the dead. He, the bridegroom, will be shut out of his own wedding, dying so his bride can live. For Jesus, crucified and risen Savior, nothing can be the same again. The contradiction of sinners has fallen upon him. He has borne it. Born it so that in his death you may die. And in his resurrection you may live. Yet more, more powerfully, in his resurrection, in his regeneration, in his rebirth from death to life, you may be regenerated. You may be reborn from death to life. Because nothing can ever be the same for Jesus again Nothing can ever be the same for you who name the name of Jesus again. Life is yours, not death. Resurrection life is yours, not eternal death. Regenerate life from the dead is yours, not generation under the curse, which is damnation. The semi-eschatological age, the semi-eschatological era, the semi-eschatological arena is yours. Not a mere linear hope. The resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of Lazarus has enriched your knowledge, your experience, your possession of life now. Even as you possess the resurrection unto eternal life on that last day. You are left in John 11 with an empty tomb. With an empty tomb. Death has been swallowed up in life. Darkness has become glorious light. Sighs and tears and groans have been turned to joy unspeakable. Passivity, sublime passivity has become almighty activity. For the Son of God has taken to Himself the death of one of His loved ones, And he has put in death's place what is eternally in him. Life. I leave you with an empty tomb. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone, every one of you, 
who lives and believes in me shall never die. Nothing can ever be the same again. Now we turn to John 12, where the linkage between John chapter 11 and John chapter 12 is explicit at a number of points. The identical Jewish festival forms the backdrop to both of these chapters. Passover in chapter 11 verse 55, Passover in chapter 12 verse 1. Many of the same characters appear in each chapter. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Jesus, the Pharisees. The setting is the same in both chapters, even as it shifts from Bethany to Jerusalem. The resurrection of Lazarus is set in Bethany, chapter 11, verses 1 and 18, while the report of the stupendous miracle travels quickly to the Pharisees who convene a council with the chief priests, chapter 11, 46, 47, in Jerusalem. Notice verses 55 and 57. The anointing of Jesus is set in Bethany, chapter 12, verse 1, while the triumphal entry occurs in Jerusalem, chapter 12, verse 12. Now, further linkage is signaled by the pattern of death and resurrection. Lazarus's and Christ's. Note especially the retrospective references to Lazarus, whom Jesus understood raised from the dead, chapter 12, verses 1, 9, and 17, and the prospective reference to Christ's resurrection from the dead, chapter 12, verse 24. I also want to direct your attention to the Loud voice, megalephone in the Greek, chapter 11, verse 43, and the theophonic voice, phone ectu uranu, the voice out of heaven, chapter 12, verse 28. Will you notice also the reference to the Romans and the nation in chapter 11, verses 48 and 51, with the appearance of the Greeks? And the reference to the cosmos, the world, in chapter 12, verses 20 and 19, respectively. Finally, please observe that after the resurrection of Lazarus and the council of the chief priests and Pharisees, Jesus withdraws. He withdraws to the wilderness, chapter 11, verse 54. Following the dinner with Lazarus and the plot to kill Jesus by the chief priests in chapter 12, verse 10, the triumphal entry inflames the enmity of the Pharisees, chapter 12, verse 19, so that Christ must withdraw. He must again withdraw and hide himself from them, chapter 12, verse 36. The resurrection of Lazarus marks the increase of enmity on the part of the seed of the serpent. The hour has come. Chapter 12, verse 23. John 11 and 12 compose the conclusion to the book of signs and the inception to the book of Jesus' hour. 
The death and resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11 is the final Simeon of John's gospel, yet it is the occasion of Christ's own death and resurrection prototypically foreshadowed in the Son of Man's sayings and the grain of wheat sayings in chapter 12. We are six days short of the crucifixion, chapter 12, verse 1. The plot thickens. Allusions to the death of Christ become more frequent. In this chapter, in verse 7, 10, 16, 23, 24, 27, and 32. We are rapidly approaching the climax of the gospel. And the biblical theological emphases are dramatically underscored with all the intensity of a story rushing to its conclusion. Christological, soteriological, eschatological. Structurally, this chapter falls out into four acts plus a commentary and discourse. The anointing at Bethany is Act 1. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Act 2 is the triumphal entry, verses 12 to 19. Act 3 is the approach of the Greeks, verses 20 to 26. The theophany is Act 4, verses 27 to 36a, followed by a commentary from the author of the gospel, verse 37, 36b rather, to 43 and a concluding discourse by Jesus, verses 44 to 50. The chapter opens with an analepsis. 12.1 forms the link to chapter 11 in general, while the action at Bethany, 12.1 to 8, is a prolepsis of chapter 11, verse 2 in particular. What had occurred in chapter 11 in that household in Bethany is recapitulated in chapter 12 in the same household in Bethany. With the coming of Jesus to the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus of Bethany comes death. It is death which brackets the account of the anointing, albeit the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Notice verses 1 and 9. They contain precise parallel phrases. Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. The resurrection of Lazarus brackets the burial death anointing of Jesus. The irony starkly contrasts and portends the unique destiny of Christ. The devout act of Mary at Bethany is enfolded by an inclusio of devotion to her brother. Lazarus reclines with Jesus at supper. He does not speak. Lazarus remains silent as he was in chapter 11. The characterization of Lazarus as host at the supper, speechless host at the supper, speechless host reclining with Jesus at the supper, characterizes the entire family at Bethany. Lazarus does not speak, he acts, he reclines with Jesus. Martha does not speak, 
She acts. She serves Jesus. Mary does not speak. She acts. She anoints Jesus. This family, each member of which loves Jesus, is acting in response to his love for them. Chapter 11, verse 36. Their speechless love here displays their humility and contentment with the presence of the Son of God. When someone does speak in this pericope, when Judas Iscariot does speak in verse 5 of chapter 12, he does so out of discontent and petty greed. What a contrast. What a contrast. Here is a family content to serve Jesus, recline with Jesus, bathe Jesus' feet, and here is a man crabbing about the secret graft he won't be able to pilfer. Like a leftist bureaucrat, Judas cries, The poor! The poor! When in truth he cares nothing for the poor at all. He cares only for the money he can take from those who have earned it in order to divert it to his favorite pork barrel. The silence of the family at Bethany here in John 12 is golden. It is radiant with Christocentricity. And Mary's act, Mary's act is exegetical of the Christocentric devotion of this household. She has come to the feet of Jesus before. Yes, she has. In grief, she fell at his feet. Where she repeats her sister's protestation, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, chapter 11, verse 32. And now she pours out on his feet her precious ointment, lavishing upon her, Lord, genuine spikenard, costly perfume, drenching his toes, his feet, his ankles. And now it drenches her hair. As she sits at his feet and dries the nard with her tresses, behold how she loves him. Is Mary's act an act of hospitality, as was common when a special guest came for dinner and spikenard was poured upon the head to refresh the guest? Or is Mary's act an act of gratitude, lavishing upon Jesus her precious ointment in response to what Jesus has done for her brother? Or is Mary's act an act of love, anointing, wiping the feet of the Jesus whom she loves as her Savior and friend? She does not tell us, does she? Silent Mary bending over Jesus' feet lavishing the fragrance of her costliest possession upon him, bearing that same fragrance in her hair. The ambiguity is removed when Jesus speaks. Mary's unspoken act, uninterpreted by her, is exegeted by Jesus. For the day of my burial, verse 7, She has anointed me for the grave. Now it is clear. Mary has poured out her love, her gratitude, 
her hospitality upon the feet of Jesus because she is anointing him for death. Is this why she wipes his perfumed feet with her hair? Does she seek to bear upon her own head the anointing of his death? Does she transfer to her own head the passion of the Lord Jesus? In anointing him, is she anointing herself with what will flow from his head, his hands, his feet? She has done this before, you know. She has anointed the feet of the dead for the grave once before. She has lavished her devotion on one dear and precious to her and laid his feet in a tomb before. Her brother Lazarus, once dead, now alive from the dead, was anointed for the grave. She had bid him farewell with spices, perfumes, and costly Fragrances. Did her eyes run down? Did her eyes run down with tears as she laid her brother in the grave? Did her grief cause her to cover her head with sorrow? Must she give up yet another loved one to the tomb? Then he will have no less than what her brother had. No less. Jesus will have her anointing for the tomb. Jesus will have her sorrow as he draws near to death. Jesus will know that she is content. She is content to transfer his anointing to herself. She is willing to identify, to identify with death and burial and embalming spices and graveyard perfumes because she is willing to identify herself with his death and burial. Must he go the way to death? She is willing to identify with his passion. Must he come to the grave? She is willing to embrace, to anoint, to wipe, to transfer his death to herself. He is the resurrection and the life. Though he dies, yet shall he live. And Mary, Mary of Bethany, believes. She believes. And she Around, she surrounds him with the aroma which she has poured forth, not on the stench of a corpse, not on the nauseous stink of a body four days in the grave. The aroma she pours forth covers her Lord, permeates the whole house, fills up the room. Jesus' feet, her hair, fills them up with a perfume which shouts, Life! not death. Resurrection life, not death. Mary of Bethany pours out her precious ointment upon the feet of Jesus and she enters the mystery of His death and resurrection. That is why she is not present at the foot of the cross. That is why she is not present with the other women at the empty tomb on the first day of the week. She's already understood it. She's already appropriated the death and resurrection. And in faith she cradles his feet, she perfumes his body and wipes away the excess with her hair, bearing his unction, his unction upon herself. He is the resurrection and the life, and I believe in him. But Mary's sweet-smelling devotion 
stands in stark contrast with her antagonist. Judas Iscariot acts in this narrative. Judas Iscariot cannot remain silent in his peevishness. How often petty people, petty people talk and talk and talk and talk. Judas talks. And it is not devotion to Christ which spills from his mouth. He is a practical man. He is an activistic man. He is a man with a program, with an agenda, with a heart of a thief. How utterly profound the contrast between Mary of Bethany and Judas Iscariot. She takes Jesus' feet in her hands. Judas hands Jesus over to nails through the feet. She anoints him for death. He betrays him to death. She lavishes her wealth upon her Lord. He grouches that his potential wealth has been wasted on the Lord. She is a benefactress. He is a tightwad. She generously gives. He selfishly steals. She believes. He remains in his sins. The contrasting elements of true and false discipleship revealed throughout John's story of Jesus are revealed here once more in John 12, 1 to 8. Mary, a true disciple, Judas, a false disciple. Mary giving, surrendering, lavishing, devoting, loving, believing, Judas stealing, pilfering, self-possessing, selfishly, opportunistically, materialistically disbelieving. Mary does not draw the spotlight to herself. The center of Mary's act, the center of Mary's faith, the center of Mary's love, the center of Mary's life is Christ. Judas Judas is stuck on himself, his bag, his money, his little game, his arrogant one-upsmanship, his hypocrisy, his self. Note verse 6. Change every third person personal pronoun to ego, to the first person personal pronoun. I said this not because I was concerned about the poor, but because I am a thief. And as I have the money box, I am able to pilfer what is put into it. Egocentric Judas is the antithesis of Christocentric Mary. The next day, verse 12, day 5 before the Passover, remember verse 1. As the countdown to the cross advances apace, Jesus enters Jerusalem. Scene shift from Bethany to the capital, from an intimate dinner to a coronation march. The one anointed in Bethany is celebrated as the anointed king of Israel in Jerusalem. This is a messianic procession, but a procession filled with Johannine irony. Interestingly, the drama of Palm Sunday in John's Gospel is framed by the Lazarus incident. The great multitude, verse 9, has come to Bethany not only to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus, whom he miraculously raised from the dead. This multitude, notice again, verse 17, 
is present after the triumphal entry, where, once again, the impact of the miraculous resurrection of Lazarus is cited, verses 17 and 18. In addition, a further bracketing device enveloping the entrance into Jerusalem is the reaction of the chief priests and Pharisees. In verse 10, they plot the death of Lazarus because many are believing on Jesus on account of his miraculous resurrection, verse 11. And in verse 19, they grow increasingly frustrated with the response to Jesus. The cosmos, the world, has gone after him. The crowd still reacts to miracles with nationalistic demonstrations. As in John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, the multitude attempted to seize Jesus and make him king, chapter 6, verse 15. So here, the crowd, on account of the miracle at Bethany, welcomes Jesus as the king of Israel, verse 13. Christ, however, does something truly messianic. Without reigning on the crowd's parade, Jesus nevertheless shifts the focus of messianic expectation. If the Jews want a nationalistic, political, materialistic, militaristic, ethnic Messiah, Jesus transforms the messianic expectation by riding on a donkey. Now, it is a truism in every Palm Sunday sermon that Jesus comes as a humble, meek, about-to-suffer Messiah. But what few of those dispensational and quasi-dispensational preachers realize is that by riding on a donkey, Jesus is exegeting. He is exegeting Old Testament messianic prophecy. John doesn't want us to miss the point, so he quotes one of the relevant Old Testament messianic prophecies, Zechariah 9.9. But the parenthesis mongers and the prophetic clock stoppers don't seem to read verse 16. The disciples were expecting the same thing the crowds were expecting. A literal Davidic king with a sword, armor, army, siege engines, howitzers, the whole works, to blow the hated Romans into the Mediterranean Sea. But when Jesus was glorified, they understood that their nationalistic, political, theocratic, and ethnic view of the Old Testament was not Jesus' view of the Old Testament, nor was it, on the exegesis of Jesus, the Old Testament's view of itself. By riding into Jerusalem as the king of Israel on a donkey, Jesus was expounding the messianic passages of the Old Testament. Or to use F.F. Bruce's famous phrase, this is that. This which Jesus is doing on Palm Sunday is that which the Old Testament prophets meant when they prophesied the coming of the Messiah. Our reformed hermeneutical principle is not derived from a parenthesis, from a vacuum, from a broken clock. Our reformed hermeneutical principle is that Jesus and the New Testament apostles infallibly interpret Old Testament messianic prophecy when they record incidents like the triumphal entry in John 12. Literal messianists looking for an earthly, nationalistic, political, theocratic, Davidic, ethnic kingdom of God have got big trouble. Jesus says no. Peter says no. Paul says no. John says no. The early Christians say no. If the Old Testament messianic program was not fulfilled nationalistically, theocratically, politically, ethnically, but was fulfilled universally, democratically, spiritually, cosmically, then that is what the mind of God intended to convey through the language of the Old Testament prophets in the first place. 
This non-national kingship shown in the triumphal entry, this non-political kingdom shown in the triumphal entry, this non-ethnic dominion shown in the triumphal entry, note verses 19 and 32, this non-theocratic realm shown in the triumphal entry, this is what Zechariah 9.9 and all the Old Testament messianic prophecies meant. I interpret the Old Testament messianic prophecies in the light of their New Testament fulfillment. The Holy Spirit who inspired the prophets inspires Jesus and the apostles to explain the mind and words of the prophets. I do not invent a prophetic theory to account for non-literalism because I define Old Testament prophetic literalism to be the canon of fulfillment from the nether end of Christ's kingdom proclamation, his kingdom parables, his kingdom demonstrating miracles, his kingdom defining morals, Sermon on the Mount. I don't do that. Christ himself defines the messianic kingdom foretold by the Old Testament prophets. It is not nationalistic. It is for all nations. It is not ethnic. It is for Jew and Gentile alike. It is not political. It is for believers under capitalism, socialism, communism, anarchism. It is not theocratic. It is eschatological. It is not literal. It is spiritual. John 12:14 is an exegesis of John 12:15. Zechariah 9.9. That exegesis is expanded in John 18.36 where Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. And John 19.19, the placard, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. In a kingdom not of this world. I don't know how you miss it. I honestly don't know how you get it and all kind of tergiversations that you've got to go through, and tricks and hoops and everything else in order to make him say what he didn't say. And then to invent a theory to lay over top of it so he'll say what you want him to say. Sounds to me like eisegesis gone amuck. It were to deny that Christ himself can exegete and interpret the Old Testament messianic scriptures were I to invent a parenthesis and insert it between the first and second advent of Jesus. Now the mention of the cosmos, the world in verse 19, provides the lead into scene 3 of chapter 12. And let's take a break and we'll return to look at this section of the chapter when the Greeks come to Jesus.